interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. If I were really good at improv, I'd be able to tie that in somehow with what I'm about to talk about. But I've never, I've never done improv, and I haven't got a clue how that fits with what I'm up to tonight. So that's your task, uh, uh, to figure, figure this uh, connection out. In some ways, um, there probably isn't an analogy uh, here about how we figure um, how the compartments of our own lives fit together. And, and oftentimes... They just don't fit, uh, and, and maybe we'll we'll start there. I I am uh, thrilled to be here. Um, back in uh, early summer, when uh, folks asked me to come to Ithaca, I thought you know that would be a really nice place to go. And then I I, I realized they meant in February, uh, but it it was actually warmer when I arrived here, then when I left Boston this morning. So, uh, unusual. I, I have had a very warm uh, reception uh, uh, here, uh, socially as well as uh, physically, I think. Uh, I have a sense of belonging to this uh, lecture series. The very first IBS lecturer was my uh, predecessor uh, in the Much uh, Chair, uh, Ed Gordon-Conwell, uh, Roger Nicole, uh, and last year's lecturer, Dr. Stephen Um, was one of my students uh, way back uh, yonder. And so there is a sense of belonging uh, here, and uh, I hope this evening I'll give you a little taste of what's coming the rest of the weekend that will bring you back. Uh, but I, I have in mind to start with a little thought experiment I want you to imagine life before 9-11, one of those events before which it's hard to imagine life uh, as it was. Now, cranking up the thought experiment a little bit uh, uh, further, suppose uh, you held dual passports. Uh, Probably weren't allowed to hold them at that point in time. You were a U.S. resident and a resident of Afghanistan. And every morning, uh, the Concord, it doesn't fly anymore, that's why you have to move back in time a little bit, uh, landed here in Ithaca and uh, took you to uh, Jalalabad and dropped you off for the day's work uh, and then brought you back here to Ithaca every evening. I dare say that um, it would have been a shock to your system. You knew that in one country... Uh, there was a large, relatively ambiguous uh, take on religion. And in the other, a deeply devout and rigidly Muslim country. In the one world, all the talk centered around the latest immoral behavior of politicians, movie stars, and sports celebrities. In the other world, all the talk centered around religious revolution. 
devotion to the latest mandates of the Ayatollahs. In the one world, money was everywhere. In the other, poverty was pervasive. In the one, women's bodies were marketed commodities. The other women couldn't even show their face in public. In the one, religious pluralism was the dominant social fabric. In the other, religious uniformity was strictly enforced. Now, imagine going back and forth between those two worlds every day. I dare say it probably would have been quite disorienting. Done long enough, you might have developed what psychologists called schizophrenia, maybe. Philosophers might have called it a fundamental conflict of worldviews at the center of your being. But most of us would have experienced this as simply a mess, living with that internal disorientation. But it strikes me that we don't recognize this is not merely a thought experiment. This is, at least in analogous ways, the reality in which we are all embedded in. Not strictly in these terms, but this conflict of worlds. If not two, at least many of these worlds. Some of you experiences the conflict between the past and the present. Between a tradition and a, a world without traditions. Between technology and the world of religion. Uh, Uh, A shameless plug, maybe, at this point, for a lecture that Mark Knoll will give in a month. Uh, Many of you feel the angst, uh, not so much in the classroom, but in the general cultural um, uh, illusion of this deep and embedded warfare between these two worlds, science and religion. Uh, There is no better historian, really no better uh, public uh, theologian than Mark Knoll uh, to think about uh, this in cultural perspective across American history. So be there in a month. Uh, uh, Mark will be very insightful uh, at discussing the conflicts of these two worlds. Many of us experience the conflict between living in uh, compartments of our lives that are run on the basis of efficiency and structure, calculability, and other parts of our life that are very mysterious, um, sacred, and we wonder how they go together. Thirty years ago, Peter Berger talked about the conflict between tradition and modernity, and he used the uh, uh, airplane as the vehicle to get the argument off the ground. He said the jet traveler sitting on that airliner looking out the window over the Indonesia archipelago is a pretty good metaphor of the modern world. He moves on the same planet as the villagers below, and yet he moves in an altogether different world. His space is measured in thousands of miles. There's the distance a bullock cart can go. His time is expressed in the controlled precision of airline schedules. 
theirs by the seasons of nature in the human body. He moves with breathtaking speed. They move in the slow rhythms set long ago by tradition. His life hurls itself into an open future. Theirs moves in careful connection with the ancestral past. He has vast power, physical as well as social, more or less at his command. They have very little of either. While it's not a god in that he's mortal, his lifespan will very much likely be longer than theirs. Seen in the perspective of such villagers, modernity is the advent of a new world of mythological power and potency. I think we live in between those two worlds. We experience life now with this mythological power. And yet so many times we're cognizant that we really do belong to this earth. And we are not God. Ours is a time where uh, the power of our tools gives us the mythology that we can do just about anything. The power of choice. Think about how many choices you face today, let alone the choices you face with life itself. Having choices is deeply empowering. We suppose it's actually a freedom from the drudgery and the constraints of a time when people couldn't choose the way you and I choose. Choose a spouse. I have three 20-somethings, and I I think arranged marriages make a lot more sense from this side uh, than they did when I was that age. But marriage is a choice. You will choose an occupation. You will choose as you have an education. You will choose which foods to eat. In fact, it's hard to imagine anything in your life that you haven't chosen. Choice is all-pervasive. It's ubiquitous. It's part of our identity. But the more we choose, the more arbitrary many of those choices become. We become more conscious of ourselves as choosers. And we move inevitably from that outside, objective world of givens to that inner world of subjectivity, where the choices come from. And that inner world of subjectivity is much more ambiguous, much less clear. Why A and not B? Why this spouse, not that spouse? The inner world becomes much more complex. And we ask ourselves, as I want to ask tonight, Who's down there, deep down there, that's making these choices? Who are you? We know there's no longer a simple I, in quotation marks, deep down there all by itself. That mythology of the lonely, isolated individual acting simply in accord with their own desires is a figment of our imagination. My generation, the boomer generation, put to death, I think, once and for all, that individual selfishness is not all that it's cracked up to be. 
And in your generation, there's been a move, a noticeable move, sociologists tell us, to community, to communal themes, to yearning to belong to others, for relationships, for collaboration. for communities of generosity and interdependence. But, as a colleague of mine who has worked in youth ministry for nearly 60 years, a child of a hippie community of the late 50s and early 60s says, I love community. I just could never live in one. It cost too much. He's not talking about money. Think of the cost to hang around a community that actually endures. That is a community. It wouldn't be very convenient. It'd be difficult to make important decisions if they weren't just your own. It'd be much more complex, much more stressful. It'd be kind of like a marriage, wouldn't it? Think of the common metaphors of communities in our time. Starbucks, right? Seems almost spiritual and mystical, doesn't it? But we all know better now that it's highly consumeristic and they're shutting down about 400 of them because it doesn't pay for itself like they thought it did. Or Facebook. It's an online community that connects you with friends. My daughter talks about the intimacy of her friends on Facebook, all 250 friends. Inevitably, your identity shrinks when you have 250 friends that you only connect with online. Or showing my age, that television community, Seinfeld, followed in the next generation by friends followed in the next generation by sex in the city. These television communities of friends. Friends mattered then. If we also learned nothing else mattered. Communities require commitments, enduring commitments. And our commitments cannot simply be alternative strategies of self-fulfillment. We require normative expectations from others. And yet we chafe under them. In a society where there are so many competing interests, so many competing worlds and compartments of life, how would it ever look to belong once and for all to others? We feel beleaguered most of the time, don't you? And we suppose, I think, when we're not thinking very clearly, that if we could just manage time. Even, what an interesting metaphor, isn't it? You manage time. As if time somehow stops to let you tell it what to do. Inevitably, isn't it the case, that time manages you and we feel its grasp around our neck. There are so many obstacles 
to community. Most of them have to do with you or I. Some of you are in dating relationships. Others of you are thinking about dating relationships. Maybe it's unfair for me to say, having been married 23 years, that it's really a game of charades where you try to deceive the other into thinking you're somebody you're not. That's the whole point of dating, actually. I remember it. (laughs) I had no bad habits to share. I was always showered. I always brought nice gifts. I said very encouraging words. I was slick and deceptive. I didn't want that other person to know me. That was the whole point, actually, of the relationship. For the fear that if I wasn't somebody, she wouldn't want me. This notion that we would give ourselves away is really dangerous. Because then what's left? What's behind the mask? What's behind the charade? Protecting ourselves has something to do, it seems to me, with not knowing who we are. Miroslav Wolfen will work with a good bit tomorrow, talks about giving at the heart of the self. Giving ourselves to others is who we are. But the danger, back to our dating relationship, if you give yourself away, there's nothing left there. And pretty soon that other person's going to leave because you're all gone. For love... To really work today, you've got to be independent. But not too independent. The ironic consequence of passively passively adapting to others so that they'll like you runs the risk, the danger, that you'll actually be less valuable, less interesting, less desirable, because you're just trying to be what they want. And so you've got to be a little bit selfish, a little bit independent. Having an independent self in our day is the necessary precondition of fully joining a relationship. But an independent self a self that can't give itself away, always tends towards chronic loneliness. I think that's right. And I think probably there is no other besetting sin greater than this for most of us. Listen to the words of one of our major political figures on the campaign trail last year. I won't tell you who it was. You may guess. Each day... This candidate said, it seems thousands of Americans are going about their daily rounds, dropping off the kids at school, driving to the office, flying to a business meeting, shopping at the mall, trying to stay on their diets, 
and they're coming to the realization that something is missing. They're deciding that their work, their possessions, their diversions that they derive from their work, and the sheer busyness of life is not enough. They want a sense of purpose, a narrative arc to their lives. They're looking to relieve a chronic loneliness, a feeling supported by a recent study that shows Americans have fewer close friends and confidants than ever. And so they need an assurance that somebody out there cares about them and is listening to them, that they are not just destined to travel down that long highway towards nothingness. The sobering words from a major politician, no less. And so behind that chronic loneliness, I ask, who is it that's underneath there that's so lonely? When there are so many people around us that we are connected with. This perennial issue of human identity. Now, if I'm diagnosing our lives accurately, most of ourselves, most of us find ourselves uh, living between two worlds, negotiating, probably multiple worlds in actual fact. And we experience this collision, uh, uh, this stress of holding life's compartments together. Now, in this room, a different audience, a different claim, but in this room, most of you are relatively high. Maybe emphasize that word, high achievers. You wouldn't be in this place if you weren't. You're going to make a name for yourself. Why you've come to this city. Or why you've stayed in this place. You want to make a difference. You want a career. And you're fortunate enough to have the connections for a real career. But a career, as you know, or will come to know, has rules. And they don't always operate according to the rest of your life. And so there's dissonance. The world of work and the world of leisure, the world of the career, the world of friends. How in the world do they fit together? Who are you? Are you the same person in one place as you are in the other place? Many of you, your career will become independent of anything larger in life. It will simply be a paycheck. And it will create a lot of stress. Maybe it's something you think about climbing for a bigger paycheck, or more influence. It may have very little to do with your friends, with your family, with your neighborhood, with your church. And you will negotiate in your own mind a common identity beneath all the appearances. As opposed to having a sense of calling, Something that comes from God, maybe. Something you carry out because you answer to something larger in life that's not yourself. 
something which is not motivated by self-interest. There again, that self gets in the way of the self. After all, you may say eventually, I've got to have a plan for my life, especially if you're going to graduate in May. That's just the way the world works, you say to yourself. And making a name for myself requires a good job, an influential job. Or maybe you say, if you're married already, look, after all, my family has bills to pay. I'd love to think idealistically about a job, but I can't. I have rent to pay, food to buy, cars to pay for. And the kids cannot afford all the things they want unless I make some money. And so we develop a world. A world that doesn't seem connected with anything else, but is its own motivation. The micro-narrative, as I say, in these cases overwhelms the macro-narrative. The micro-narrative doesn't ask the big picture questions. It just assumes that life is given as it is. That you find a job and then you find a better job. You find a house and then you find a better house. You find a spouse and then, well, I'll let you fill in the blank. But in the midst of that, uh, it's not enough. Deep down. A sense of tension. A sense of not having a purpose. Not having significance. A feeling of being overwhelmed by having too many things that we've got to do to keep life going. This is, I think, in many ways, the unique or peculiar problem of the question of personal identity, who you are. I don't think it's utterly unique to our time, but it has unique manifestations in our time. There's no person out there to blame for this. There's no single problem. Nobody's inflicting this crisis upon you. It's part of the fabric of our social reality. And we are, like it or not, embedded in our social realities. And so I come to the question of the evening. Who am I? Let me give you at least four different ways to answer the question. You're a complex neurobiological organism. That's true. Your character in a story. Let's call it my life. I was born in, Pittsburgh happens to be the place of the day, I guess, since I was born there. I was, and then you could tell the rest of the story. That's true. You're a a self-embodied classic Christian 
Reflection talked about minds and bodies, souls and uh, material things. I'm not so sure we parse that the right way, historically. But I I do think there's a sense in which we are a, a self, a person embodied. That our bodiliness is critical. But we are not merely bodily beings. Or, much more common, we are members of a socially defined community. I'm a Latino. I'm an African American. I'm a, apologies aside, a Red Sox fan. Now, how could we be from Boston and not be a Red Sox fan? So, I, I, it was determined, right? I had no choice. But most of us, when we scratch below the surface, are not merely uh, that identity. I can resonate with other friends around Boston because we root for a common baseball team, but we all know there's more to each of us than that. Most of us end up introducing ourselves here, a fifth way to define this question, by what we do. Right? Uh, Carl gave a very nice introduction. Uh, Richard Lintz. Professor at Gordon-Conwell. I am what I do. Now, we haven't always defined ourselves that way, but I think Marx and Weber were probably right about capitalism, that eventually we would define ourselves by our relationship to material production. That's mostly how you introduce yourself and think of yourself. But the danger in this, shall we call it, functional identities, this worker identity, is that you can lose your job. You can cease to be a professor at Gordon-Conwell or a microbiologist in a pharmaceutical company when they downsize. Who are you then? I remember it clearly. Having finished the dissertation and said, I do, in the space of seven days and then being asked by my new beloved, uh, what are you going to do? The job search was on. And there is no more precarious state of one's existence than the state between the end of the dissertation and the first job. For what if it doesn't come? What in the world have you been doing for the last four or six or ten years if there is no job? And I remember thinking very clearly that if I don't get a job, I will be nothing. It was deeply embedded in me. I have a dear friend in Chicago. His name's Michael. Michael was trained in finance, real estate. He climbed the corporate ladder very successfully, worked with several large venture capital firms. This is before, obviously, uh, they went under uh, in our day. 
Michael became a Christian somewhere during those early years in business, and he discovered shortly after being appointed controller, one of the very most prestigious venture firms in Chicago, that the president of the firm, the CEO of the firm, was siphoning off funds in a questionable fashion. Michael wasn't sure it was illegal, but he knew it was wrong. He investigated quietly for months until he finally, burdened by a conscience, shot a memo to the CEO that explained the situation. Within days, Michael was fired. He was blacklisted, unemployed for two years. He was unemployable in those circles again. For the next five years, this is when I got to know Michael, he worked odd jobs, sometimes at the convenience store. Finally, he landed a low-paying job at the state of Illinois, brokering real estate for government projects. It wasn't very interesting work, and it barely paid the bills. He's been doing that for about a decade now. Michael's asked me several times what I think he ought to do with his life. Curious thing, though, he never questioned whether he ought to have sent that memo to the president. I raise that because I, I think there's something below, something richer, something more profound, something more beautiful about our identity than what we do for a job. That our identity is constituted as people in relationships, as characters in a narrative, as embodied persons, but It's the peculiar relationships that define us. It's the strange narrative that gives us identity. And it's the accountability and the responsibility as embodied beings that makes us who we are. It's no accident in my mind that the canon of the Christian scriptures begins in the beginning. It defines us by defining us to a narrative, to a story, to a history. But before the history begins, there's this peculiar relationship. The relationship of God to ourselves. Now, the opening chapters of Genesis, and we'll spend a good bit of time in those tomorrow morning, lay claim that God creates us. He creates us by speaking. He speaks all that exists into being. There are no signs of warfare. It's one of the very uh, unique and peculiar cosmologies of the ancient world without divine warfare. No conflicts into which God enters, nor are resolved by divine might. God is not one among many creators. God's not acting on behalf of other gods when he creates. God's act of speaking separates God from everything else. God alone is the uncreated word. So interesting about those early chapters of Genesis. 
uh, especially chapter 1, uh, is that nobody's named except for God. We simply know humankind is male and female. In fact, Adam and Isha really turn into generic names for humankind and life. God, however, is Elohim. He is the Almighty One. And His power is manifest in His speech. It's very interesting. In His speaking. You know, like I, let there be. I mean, I say that to Lucas, who's my 19-year-old son. Let there be, Lucas, a clean room when you leave. And he looks at me like I'm this dinosaur. Like, what are you talking about, Dad? But when God says, let there be, there was. God speaks and everything else is created. God blesses the creation and creation is blessed. God speaks, and everything else is silent. Now, there's been a lot of work uh, in the last uh, decade or so thinking about divine speech acts. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, uh, tomorrow, but here suffice it to say that this act of speaking, I take as critical to our identity that we are brought into being with a speech act, and that our our identity as images, reflectors, illuminators, it's a simple word picture. There's no fancy uh, philosophical anthropology there in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It is simple. It's a word picture that says you are like God, but you're not God. We have significance because God spoke us into being. Creation is invested with this echo of God's voice. I close here. I've argued that there's lots of voices in your life. It's conflicting voices. Voices, it's hard to know how the conversation fits. God has constituted you and I as beings actually who hear, who listen, and who talk. Have you ever caught yourself that moment? I do it as a professor all the time. It's almost as if in cartoon-like fashion, I'm speaking out of one side, and I'm talking to myself in the other side, saying, what am I going to say next? As if there are these two little people inside me having this conversation. That's part of our createdness by a being who speaks. That voice and word matter. But we experience those voices as voices in conflict. C.S. Lewis has that great phrase there in The Four Loves, when he says we need to do more talking to ourselves and less listening to ourselves. 
I say that to my 22-year-old daughter quite frequently. And I need to say it more often to myself. We are constituted to hear ourselves. It's the voice that grants significance. But it's a peculiar voice, the divine voice, as I'll argue tomorrow, that's not merely one among many. No warfare of divine beings wrestling over you or your identity. But that peculiar word, shall we call it the living word, that grants you your identity. Amen and amen. A taste of things to come. I just wanted to set the table. Thank you very much.